What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Here to Apologetic show. Today we are here with a debate. We have Ross Burns from Burns Eye View, who, according to the live chat, is about to burn Chris Date. So we'll see what happens. And we got Chris Date from Rethinking Hell. We're going to be debating the thesis, or they're going to be debating the thesis of will the lost remain in hell forever? Uh, starting off is going to be Chris Date. So, Chris, can you just talk a little bit about who you are, what you do at Rethinking Hell? Sure. Um, I am a conservative evangelical, um, a Calvinist, and I have become convinced over the past 10 years approximately that um, although I used to think the Bible teaches the doctrine of eternal torment, I have since become convinced that it teaches conditional immortality and annihilationism. And we at Rethinking Hell, which you can find at RethinkingHell.com, we are all conservative evangelicals committed to the infallibility and the authority of Scripture, in my case, the inerrancy of Scripture, um, and we're convinced the Bible teaches this view, but we also um, care very deeply about the body of Christ not dividing over this issue. And so debates like this between brothers in Christ um, are something I really enjoy doing so that we can model how how Christians can disagree uh, lovingly, but at the same time vigorously. Um, the other thing I'll just mention is that I've recently been brought on to faculty as an adjunct professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, um, which is the seminary whose president is Braxton Hunter and where Jonathan Pritchett is the vice president for academics. Um, and I'll be teaching biblical languages and a few other classes at the undergraduate level, um, having just recently graduated with a master's from Fuller Seminary. Um, so I guess that's uh, enough about me in a nutshell. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. And uh, I do appreciate uh, everyone here. Just so you guys know, this is a debate between two brothers in Christ. Um, they're both Christians. They're actually both Reformed Christians, which makes this even more fun. So I'm really excited. This. We'll turn to you, Ross. Talk a little bit about who you are, what you do, and welcome. Yeah, cool. So my name is Ross Burns. I have a YouTube channel which deals mostly with apologetics or worldview issues. Uh, I spend most of my time trying to irritate secular humanists, but uh, there's enough irritation within me to, to cover all sorts of areas. Um, so I would definitely go and check that out. I've been on a hiatus, um, a YouTube hiatus for uh, a little over a month now with the birth of our first daughter, my wife and I, so we're very excited about that. So I'm definitely looking to get back into things and start making lots of videos again. So definitely be checking that out at Burns Eye View and uh, on YouTube. You can definitely follow me at Twitter and Facebook at the same thing. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to, uh, man, just get slacked by Chris. I don't know. You, you know, he's, he is the expert here, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad for this opportunity. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking it. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so a little bit of the format before we, we get into opening statements. We're going to have 20-minute opening statements, and we're going to have 10-minute rebuttals from each person. We're going to have 10-minute cross-examinations, and we're going to have five-minute closings. And then we will close with a Q&A at the end. So if you have questions, feel free to put them in the live chat. And Nate2D2 is going to be DMing me the questions, so we'll hopefully get to all of them at the end. We'll go for about 30 minutes with Q&A. But with that, I'm going to mute. We're going to switch the slides over to this, and we're going to give Chris 20 minutes for his opening statement. All right. Um, first of all, I want to thank Zach for hosting and moderating this debate, and thanks too to Ross for participating. I'd want to say more words of thanks, but I've got an awful lot of material to cover, so I'm just going to dive right in. And I want to begin by setting the stage and sort of comparing and contrasting the two views that um, that I think are represented here uh, in the debate today. Um, when we when we discuss the topic of hell, we're not talking about what happens immediately after death. We're talking about what will happen after resurrection. And lexical and theological authorities uh, define resurrection 
resurrection as coming back to life after having once died, the result of coming alive from death, the raising of the dead to life, the actual raising of the dead, both body and soul to life. So this is what resurrection is. And this is these definitions are consistent with all of the language of resurrection throughout church history. It's a coming, it's, it's a coming back to life from the dead. And what's important is that the Bible says that this is something that will happen to both the saved and the lost. Both groups will be raised from the dead. So Daniel 12, 2 says, for example, that some will awaken to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, Jesus says in John 5, 28, that all who are in the tombs will come out, those who have done good at the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And Paul says in Acts 24, 15, that like all of the Pharisees, he believes there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So when we ask the question, will uh, so the question that we're debating tonight is, will the lost at that point, after they've been resurrected, remain alive in hell forever? Now, as a conditionalist, I'm going to answer this question, no. Conditionalism is short for the phrase conditional immortality, which is the view according to which immortality is ultimately conditioned upon saving faith in Christ. In our statement on evangelical conditionalism, we at Rethinking Hell say that conditionalism is the view that life is the creator's provisional gift to all, but ultimately it will be granted, uh, it'll be granted forever to the saved and revoked forever from the unsaved. You can see this teaching in the writings of church fathers like Ignatius of Antioch. He's uh, one of the earliest church fathers who wrote in the late first, early second century, calls Jesus Christ the medicine of immortality that prevents us from dying so that we can live forever in Jesus Christ. And he says that those who speak against this gift of God incur death, saying it would be better for them to treat it with respect so they might also rise again. So resurrected ongoing life is something that Ignatius didn't think the wicked have any part in. Irenaeus of Lyon, writing in the second century, says that um, uh, the Father grants continuous forever and ever uh, onto those who are saved, and that they will receive length of days forever and ever. But he who shall reject this gift, Irenaeus says, deprives himself of continuance forever and ever, and shall justly not receive from him length of days forever and ever. Arnobius of Sicca is one of the one of history's most famous annihilationists. He said that Christ um, enables us to obtain immortality so that we can escape destruction. And he says that the unquenchable fires of hell induce the last end, annihilation. Even Athanasius the Great in his in on the incarnation of the word says that humankind came from a state of non-existence and were returning to non-existence because of their sin, but that God became man in Christ so that through him we might um, truly abide forever, risen from the dead and clothed in immortality and in corruption. So you can see this stream of historical conditional conditionalism um, in the early writings of the church. Now, the other side of this debate, the doctrine of eternal torment, has historically answered this question, yes, the lost will remain alive in hell forever. Um, traditionalism is just the traditional or historically dominant view, that is eternal torment or eternal conscious punishment. And as Wayne Grudem explains, eternal torment means that unbelievers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ in resurrected bodies and then go into hell, a place of eternal conscious punishment. You see, it's, Im it's immortal, in, uh, immortal embodied life forever in hell, not some sort of disembodied conscious existence forever. Um, this is the historic doctrine of eternal torment, stretching back to the late second century with Tatian the Syrian, who said that one day we will either receive immortal with enjoyment or painful with immortality. Augustine of Hippo, who said in the fourth or fifth century that the human spirit right now is immortal and immortality will one day be in the bodies of the damned. Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening said that the bodies of the wicked will be immortal. John Gill in the Reformation said the bodies of the wicked will be immortal. Charles Spurgeon said man was condemned to live forever in 
Hell, even stretching into more contemporary days. C.S. Lewis, John MacArthur, John Piper, Robert Peterson, Mark Driscoll, Wayne Grudem, the list could go on and on and on and on and on, and it spans denominational boundaries. Um, the, 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 this is the historic doctrine of eternal torment. The resurrected lost will be made bodily immortal and live forever in hell. So let me sum up the the differences between these two views. Um, as a conditionalist, I say that the unsaved will be raised mortal. Traditionalists, defenders of eternal torment, believe the unsaved will be raised immortal. As a conditionalist, I say the unsaved will die again in hell. Traditionalists, defenders of eternal torment, say that the unsaved will live forever in hell. I say that the punishment is death as a conditionalist. Tradi uh, and by death, I mean something like what happened to the electric chair or what happened to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah when fire fell from heaven and killed them. Whereas in Traditionalism, the punishment is suffering, something like eternal torture or an everlasting prison sentence. So these are the two views that are at least historically um, are, are represented when it comes to this debate, not counting universalism. Um, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Ross clarify if he feels differently from the tradition when it's his turn. Now, here's the case that I'm going to present for conditional immortality and the negative answer to the debate question. The lost will not remain alive in hell forever. It's going to be a systematic case, a case from systematic theology. And there's a lot more I could cover, but I'm going to cover these three areas of systematic theology. Theology proper, Christology, and eschatology. So when I begin with theology proper, here I want to talk about God's holiness and his justice. By holiness, I mean that God greatly detests evil. And we see this in places like the like Psalm 45, 7, which says that Yahweh hates wickedness. Psalm 11, 5, which says Yahweh hates the wicked. Habakkuk 1, 13, who's, in which God is said to have eyes that are purer uh, than can see evil and that he can't look at wrong. And it's important to recognize that the present reality of evil isn't a challenge to God's holiness because the Bible says God will one day judge and end evil. So we see in Ecclesiastes that um, he says all the oppressions that are done under the sun, he's been seeing them, but God will bring every deed into judgment. And the Psalms say, ask Yahweh, how long shall the wicked exult? And then they go on to say that he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out. So when we consider the doctrine of God's holiness, we can conclude that God will not ensure that evil forever exists to stain his cosmos by making those who commit it immortal. Turning to God's justice, the idea here is that God perfectly punishes evildoers. And I'm not going to argue here, and I don't feel that uh, everlasting torment is somehow unjust, that it would be disproportionate or anything like that. That's not what I'm going to argue. Um, I do want to, however, first establish the biblical grounds for saying that God is uh, perfectly just, there, although that's not a, a point of contention in this debate. Deuteronomy 32.4 says his ways are justice. Psalm 96.13 says he'll judge in righteousness. Romans 9.14 asks, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So God is a perfectly just, but consider that if sin against an infinitely holy God merits an infinite punishment, then eternal torment never satisfies the demands of justice, because evildoers will never receive an infinite punishment. At any point into eternity future, they've only received a finite punishment, and that includes from trillions and trillions and trillions of years from now. On the other hand, if continued sin while being punished in hell unceasingly merits additional punishing, then eternal torment ensures that there forever remains some unpunished evil. Because at any given point in time, when the past sins are being punished, additional debt is being accrued that will have to be punished in the future. So there's always unpunished evil. Either way, it's unjust. And so if we consider that God is perfectly just, we can conclude that God will not ensure that justice is never fully satisfied by making those who commit evil immortal. I want to turn from theology proper now and turn to the area of Christology. And here I'm going to be looking at the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and at the issue of immortality. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement is the idea that Jesus died in the place of those who deserved it. 
We can see this foreshadowed in the, in the Old Testament, such as in Exodus, the, the account of the Passover. Israel is told to kill their lambs and take some of the blood and put it on their doorposts, and he will strike dead all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But when he sees the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites, he will pass over them. And Steve Jeffrey and others in their book, Pierced for Our Transgressions, rightly and, and very well defending the doctrine of um, penal substitution, say, thus the lamb becomes a substitute for the firstborn son dying in his place. We see later in Leviticus that the life of the flesh is said to be in the blood of the sacrifice, and God has given it to the Israelites on the altar to make atonement for their souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Um, as John Stott explains, one life, according to this view, is forfeit. Another one is sacrificed instead. What makes atonement on the altar is the shedding of substitutionary lifeblood. So you can see one creature is killed so that the, the others who deserve to die aren't killed. And this is important because in the New Testament, in passages like John 1.29, 1 Corinthians 5.7, and 1 Peter 1.19, Jesus is said to be the, the quintessential Passover lamb. And throughout the New Testament, in Matthew 20.28 20, and Mark 10.45, 2 Corinthians 5.15, John 10.11, and a host of others that I've got up on the screen right now, the authors use the Greek preposition obti, or the preposition huper, to say that Jesus died for those for whom he died. And those Greek prepositions have to do with substitution. So Daniel Wallace explains that evidence appears to be overwhelmingly in favor of viewing anti in Matthew 20, 20, 28 as meaning in the place of. And he says that huper is naturally suited to the meaning of substitution and is used in several passages dealing with the nature of Christ's atonement. So we can see that just as the Passover lamb and the Mosaic sacrifices died so that those who deserve to die could instead live, so Jesus died so that those for whom he died will instead live. So based on the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, we conclude that those in whose place Jesus did not die, if we're Calvinists, and at least two of us on this call are, or if we're not Calvinists, we could say those who fail to self-appropriate his saving death via faith must therefore die as the wages of their sin, since Jesus didn't suffer it in their place. Turning now to the issue of immortality, the Greek word, or one Greek word used to communicate this idea in the New Testament is athanasia, which literally means not dying. That's what that alpha privative at the beginning of athanasia is. And we can see that the bi biblical teaching is that immortality is secured only for those united to Christ. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 48 and 53, that as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. They will, uh, their mortal bodies will put on immortality. The same concept is uh, taught by Paul in Romans 6, verses 4 and 8 through 9. He says, we shall certainly be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. We will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. What is a resurrection like Christ's? One that results in never-ending life. And that's the kind of resurrection into which we are united by virtue of our faith in Christ. So when we look at the issue of immortality through the lens of Christology, we can see that Jesus secures immortality only for those united to him, who will therefore be resurrected immortal like he was. Now we're going to turn to the good stuff, eschatology. We're going to look at the passages that talk about eternal punishment and fire and torment. We're going to begin, begin with eternal punishment, and what we're going to find is that in Scripture, capital punishment is death forever. Uh, I'm talking, of course, here about Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, where Jesus says these will go away into eternal punishment. The Greek word is kolossus, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Now, the Greek word kolossus can refer to a punishment involving conscious pain, but it can also refer to the punishment of death. We can see, for example, in 2 Maccabees 4.38, that there this person dispatched the bloodthirsty fellow. The Lord thus repaid him with the punishment, kolossus, he deserved. We see this also in the Wisdom of Solomon 19, 4-5, where it says they might fill up the punishment, Colossus, which their torments still lacked um, by meeting a strange death. So Colossus here includes both torments, but also death. So Colossus can refer to either conscious pain to punishment or to death punishment. So what does the New Testament say is the punishment uh, owed, owed to people who sin? Well, Paul says in Romans 1.32 that those who do detestable things know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And he says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if there were any question as to what Paul means by death here, just read two verses later where he says that when a woman's spouse dies, she can remarry. It's obviously physical death that Paul is talking about here. So what is the eternal punishment? Well, it can't be eternal life. Uh, eternal death makes perfect sense. Um, but how would that be an eternal punishment? Because we're not talking about the process of dying. We're talking about the lifelessness that results from dying. As Augustine said, laws of, in the land reckon the punishment of death to consist not in the brief moment in which death is inflicted, but in that the offender is eternally banished from the society of the living. So the reason that death is eternal punishment if, if the wicked never die again is because the lifelessness, their exclusion from life, lasts forever. Now, of course, this verse 46 follows on the heels of verse 41, in which Jesus has the, in his parable, has the king saying, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And for some reason, believers in eternal torment, like I used to do, think that this means the wicked will burn forever, ever, forever providing fuel to the fire. But that's not what's going on here. Jude 7 uses the same phrase to say Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And what Jude is doing is referring to the fire that fell down from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Genesis 19, 24 says the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. You see, this destructive fire is eternal fire because it's eternal at its source, the quintessential consuming fire, God himself. So when we look at Matthew 25, 41 to 46, we see that eternal punishment inflicted by eternal fire is death forever, not immortality and eternal life in hell. Next, I want to look at the language of unquenchable fire, and we're going to see that it refers to fire which can't be put out and thus fully consumes. I have in mind here Jesus' words in Mark 9, 47 to 48, where he says, The wicked will be thrown into hell, Gehenna, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Once again, defenders of eternal torment, like I used to do, think here that this means the fire will never die out, but that's not what quench means. Quench means to put out, and a fire that won't be put out completely devours. Thus, in Isaiah 66, 24, the passage Jesus is quoting, it's dead bodies whose worms shall not die and whose fire shall not be quenched. And this language of fire that won't be quenched is used elsewhere in passages like Jeremiah 17, 27, which says the fire that God will kindle in the gates of Jerusalem will devour or consume the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. You see, the fact that it won't be extinguished or put out means it will completely burn up the things that God sets it to devour. As for the worm that won't die in this passage in here and in Isaiah, this language of the worm not dying is language very similar to the language of Jeremiah 7, verses 32 to 33. There, Jeremiah says that one day it will no longer be called the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's the Old Testament language from which we get the New Testament word Gehenna or Gehenna, but the valley of slaughter. 
And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. You see, having one's corpse left exposed and unburied to be eaten by fire or eaten by scavengers was a great shame uh, um, in, in the Israelites' mind. And here God is saying, you're not going to be, no one's going to frighten away the scavengers from feeding upon the corpses of the, of the wicked's dead bodies. Well, if nobody frightens those scavengers away, what, is it, what do they do? They eat them up. So when we look at Mark 9, 48 and Isaiah 66, 24, we can see that unquenchable fire and undying worms can't be stopped prematurely from completely consuming corpses. Finally, we look at the language of eternal torment, and there's only one place in all of Scripture that even comes close to uh, talking about eternal torment, and that's in the book of Revelation. And what we're going to find is that in these passages in Revelation, the language is authoritatively interpreted as symbolizing death and destruction. I begin with Revelation 14, 9 to 11, in which John sees that beast worshipers will drink of God's wrath and be tormented with fire and sulfur, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. But this is, but, but what's important when you look at the book of Revelation is the dynamic between the image in the vision and what its interpretation is in reality. Um, so we see here that there are at least three images that are reused later in the very same book. Um, the images are the drinking of wrath and being tormented of fire and smoke rising forever. And all three of those things are used to describe what happens to this blood drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of the beast called Mystery Babylon. But what does this, what is the interpretation of this imagery. Well, an angel tells John, the Babylon, the great city represented by that harlot will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So this is imagery communicating death and destruction, not everlasting life in immortality. Then in Revelation 20, 10 to 15, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever. So we see that in the vision, eternal torment does indeed take place. But the question is, what does that imagery mean? And here we need to look at its background in the book of Daniel. You see, the beast with its ten horns, with the features of a leopard, a bear, and a lion in the book of Revelation comes from Daniel 7, in which the four beasts look like, like, like a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then the fourth beast has ten horns. But the interpretation in both Revelation 13, 9 to 10, and in Daniel 7, 17 and 23, is that the this beast or these beasts represent a kingdom of successive kings or successive kings and kingdoms. Similarly, the image in Revelation is the beast being thrown alive into a lake of fire, whereas in Daniel, the image is that the beast is killed and its body is thrown into a river of fire. It's okay that the imagery is different because what matters isn't the imagery. What matters is its meaning, its interpretation. And John is told in Revelation 17, 8, and 11 that the beast goes to destruction. That's its interpretation, which is the same interpretation in Daniel 7, 23, and 26. Finally, all of this is why John and God himself both interpret the second death as symbolize or interpret the lake of fire as symbolizing the second death. You see, the image is a lake of fiery torment. The interpretation, however, is dying a second time. Importantly, the language of second death comes from the Aramaic Targums, the, the, old, the Old Testament Hebrew being translated into the Aramaic at the time of John. And in the Targums, where the phrase second death is used in conjunction with Gehenna, in fact, it means literally dying a second time and never participating in the life to come. So when we put the pieces together, we see that in Revelation 14 and 20, smoke rising forever from eternal torment in the lake of fire collectively symbolizes a dying a second time and forever. 
So let me recap what we found. First of all, we saw that in, when it comes to the holiness and justice of God, God will not ensure evil forever exists to stain his cosmos by making those who commit it immortal, and he will not ensure that justice is never fully satisfied by making those who commit evil immortal. Christology, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, means that those in, pl in whose place Jesus did not, did not die or fail to self-appropriate it must die as wages of their sin, and that Jesus secures immortality only for those united to him. And then we just looked at the eschatology passages, and my time is up, so I'll end there. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, great opening statement. We are now going to turn it to Ross, and you have 20 minutes, Ross. Okay, awesome. Uh, well, thank you, Chris, for that really, uh, man, speedy opening statement. You got through a lot there, so very impressed. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe just to start out my own personal experience with annihilationism, uh, I always thought of annihilationism as that, you know, that weird doctrine that you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists like to, like to, you know, like to teach. And uh, so, so Chris is really the first kind of uh, interaction I've had with someone whose theology I really respect, who holds to annihilationism. So, uh, so hear, hear this debate, hear my side of the argument, not as someone who will never be convinced of your position, but someone who is not yet convinced of your, of your position. It's not something I will... Uh, I will say it is impossible to change my mind on this, whereas uh, certain other positions are much less likely. So, uh, so hear that, hear my thoughts in that context. Um, so the way I see it is we have a harmonization task on our hands because uh, we recognize that the Bible teaches um, in a variety of languages what's going to happen to lost people um, when they're dead. Obviously, we've heard that they will perish, they will die, they'll be destroyed, they'll be consumed, be no more, uh, be slain, they'll have the body and soul killed in hell. Uh, all this is used in scripture. So it, it uh, you know, at first glance, it really does seem like they'll, they, you know, they'll perish, they'll cease to exist. Uh, but then there are other texts in scripture, and especially in the New Testament, that seem to indicate that there will be an ongoing existence with phrases like tormented day and night, forever and ever, having no rest day or night, uh, being eternally destroyed away from the presence of the Lord, things like that that would make you think, okay, well, maybe there is an ongoing existence after life. And here's how I think that we should harmonize these passages. And so clearly the scriptures teach that the unbelieving lost will die or perish or be destroyed, etc., uh, but I think the disagreement that Chris and I will have is largely centered around the meaning of death and life, um, which is why settling on an agreed thesis for us was a little bit problematic. So the thesis that we've agreed to, will the, uh, will the lost remain alive in hell forever, isn't exactly how I would phrase it. I would have preferred to phrase it something like, will the lost uh, eternally exist in hell? Will the lost uh, you know, be conscious forever in hell. But we have, Chris and I have, I think, a language disagreement. So we, we have to work with what we've got. But uh, that, that would be what I'm more comfortable with. Um, I think the definition of terms is going to be key for at least my understanding where, where I'm being inconsistent. So for Chris, and please feel free to cr clarify me, I think that Chris thinks that death in the New Testament means the cessation of existence. Um, but from my perspective, and I think the majority of Christians since Christ has started building his church, death does not mean the cessation of existence. Uh, it 
involves a continuation after our life here and after our the final judgment. So where I would differ slightly is I am less, I'm a little bit more ambiguous on whether or not uh, after the final judgment, the lost will remain bodily tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, he, Chris quoted plenty of, plenty of good scholars whom I respect, um, who hold the traditionalist point of view, who do say that uh, the loss will remain bodily forever and ever being tormented. Now, when I read Revelation 20, it does say that they will be bodily resurrected, which I completely affirm, but then it just says that they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I think we might be, uh, I think we might be a little too hasty, a little too unwilling to accept the ambiguity that is there. Um, so I'm not saying that they, uh, the lost will be um, disembodied in an immaterial soul tortured forever and ever. And I'm also not holding a hard stance that they will be bodily. I think that there should be a little bit of ambiguity on our part as to how that exactly works out. But I do affirm as with the historical church and as with uh, all of the people that Chris brought up that uh, the best understanding is that lost persons will continue to consciously exist in hell after the final judgment. And here's four reasons, if I can get to them, here's four reasons why I think that is the case. So the first reason, I think Revelation very clearly teaches that the lost person will be tormented, implying conscious. Uh, so Revelation 14, 9 through 11, I'll just read it for you. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, who receive the mark of its name. And then we go further into Revelation chapter 20, starting with verses 10 and going to the end of the chapter. I'll just try and highlight some of this. So the, uh, uh, let's see here. So the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here we have again, this pasanismas, this torment day and night forever and ever. And then it goes down in verse 12 and following. Um, it talks about this great white throne judgment. The, uh, the sea gave up all the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, and then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this lake of fire, which we've already read earlier in the chapter, entails tormenting day and night forever and ever. Um, and then further in Revelation, we read that the cowardly, the faithful, this is chapter 21, verses 8. The cowardly, faithless, detestables for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So here again, that affirmation of the second death, which I, I assume we'll get into a little bit later and what that is, what the best interpretation of that is. Um, and then further in chapter 22, uh, in verses 15, it talks about how uh, this uh, the, the righteous have earned the right to the tree of life and they enter the city of living people forever and ever, right? New heavens, new earth, awesome stuff. And then verse 15, outside of that, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually moral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Obviously a parallel with the, uh, the mean and nasty group mentioned in the previous two chapters. 
So they are outside. That's that's where they will remain, it seems. So here we see that the lost will be tormented day and night forever and ever in the, in the book of Revelation. I think, I think the passages are very clear. Um, I think it's very difficult to demonstrate that tormented day and night forever and ever with no rest means something other than tormented day and night forever and ever with no rest. I don't see how we can get a cessation of conscious existence out of that. So that's the first reason. The second reason I would point to, uh, now, now, don't get a, uh, bear with me here. <laughs> it's not going where you think immediately. So the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Um, so he, here's my point. So let me just read the scripture for you in Luke 16. So the rich man, um, or sorry, Lazarus, he desired to be fed with the food that fell from the rich man's table and the dogs came and licked his sores. He's a very unfortunate person. That is very true. So he died. And he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And then the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So this parable, well, uh, par could be parable, could be actual story, could be actual historical event that Jesus is referring here. Um, this is not Gehenna. It is not the final state of the lost, but it's Hades. It's the intermediary state. Uh, Hades here is described as a place of torment, even though this person has died. So the rich man is very dead. His body is still on earth, and yet he is being tormented in this place called Hades. Now, here, here would be my argument. If the first death did not result in the cessation of consciousness, but in active torment, as Jesus here seems to indicate, then why should we believe that the second death is cessation of consciousness? That would be, that would be the point that I would like to bring up. So if we can infer that conscious torment occurs among the lost in Hades, the intermediary state, then uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't go to say that simply death means cessation of consciousness or that no torment is going on at all. So that, that should maybe factor into our understanding of the second death. So those are, those are going to be my two main strict scriptural arguments. And... Uh, <clears throat> Then if we can go here. So the third reason I will give as to why I think it's best understood that the lost will remain conscious forever and not uh, a cessation of consciousness is uh, picture with me, if you will, um, everybody's favorite evil villain dictator, Joseph Stalin. So I don't think I need to go over all of the awful things that he's done, um, but that really quite awful the, with the gulags and all the banishments. I mean, he really made good use out of, uh, out of Siberia. I, I got to hand it to him. Very re resourceful man. So awful person killed countless millions of people. And here's the picture I'd like to paint for you. So Stalin died in his bed. I think it was his bed. And then depending on your view of the intermediary state, I believe Chris's view, I could be mistaken. I'd like to be corrected if I'm mistaken, is that Stalin will be unconscious for however long until he's raised up in the final judgment. So Stalin will be unconscious for however long, then he'll be raised up, and then he will experience uh, a, a, brief, a brief experience of pain and then nothingness. Now, I would, I would point out that uh, I think all of us intuitively think that, man, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, I mean, the, the nice 
lost people that that I've met, you know, who are seem a lot nicer than than Joseph Stalin, they're going to be experiencing a very similar very similar uh, end fate to Joseph Stalin. That doesn't seem it doesn't seem right. And uh, I think we can inferring from some of Jesus's statements and something from James. So in Luke 10:14 through 15, Jesus tells uh, speaking to Capernaum, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. That's speaking to Capernaum. And then in James 3, 1, uh, James says that uh, those who teach will be judged more severely than others. And he's saying not all of you should become teachers because some of you are going to be, those who are teachers are going to be judged more severely than others. And in Luke 12, uh, 41 through 48, um, one of Jesus's parables here, the servant that who knew what his master wanted but didn't prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. But the servant who did things and deserved a beating without knowing it will receive a light beating. So we have um, in the context of final judgment, in the context of Jesus's return in Luke 12, Jesus seems to say that a uh, some lost people will receive a worse beating than others, seems to be what he's saying. So if we have this idea of a differentiation in the degree of punishment in the last days, then it, it seems that seems that Stalin's degree of punishment uh, should be a lot more than what the annihilationists might suggest. It seems like it should be, uh, if there's going to be proportionality with Stalin's crimes, it should go on, <laughs> you know, infinitely, you would think, or at least uh, approaching infinitely. Uh, he sinned against an infinitely holy God, and he has also uh, done so much evil in his lifetime. And if there is proportionality, to the degree which we sin and to the degree which God punishes us, it seems that just an, an execution would not do uh, would not do Stalin justice. So that's the third reason. And then we move over to the fourth reason. Now, uh, as Chris has really kind of pointed out pretty well, uh, the traditional view, which I am uh, mostly holding to, is the consensus of the church over 2,000 years. Now, there is diversity. There was diversity within uh, the second century, certainly, and even going into the third century. Um, but following the fourth century onward, there is great unanimity with what the church is teaching on this issue. You people like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, going to that uh, first or second, third century gap there, Cyprian, Chris, John Chrysostom, Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, Athanasius, those key church fathers. And then even going further, every major Orthodox tradition, including the evangelical movement, mainline Protestants, Roman Catholicism, uh, with, with the exception of Eastern Orthodoxy, just because they don't have um, a lot of clearly defined doctrine on a lot of things. And then, so all major denominations committed to sola scriptura and all reformed confessions even all affirm this doctrine that the lost will remain conscious forever in hell, that they will not be annihilated. And when the church has reached consensus on an issue from the fourth century through the Reformation, it is very difficult for me to believe that it could have been wrong. Uh, I mean, that's about as good as we get on issues like uh, the, the Trinity. It's, it's better than issues we get um, on things like baptism or the Lord's Supper or, uh, or 
you know, various other issues, the, the view of the millennium. Um, this has greater consensus than any of those issues and uh, almost approaching the view of the Trinity, but certainly not as much as the Trinity. So I believe that Christ declared that he would build his church and uh, I don't think he waited this long in order to do so. I don't think he waited until the 19th and 20th century in order to clarify this doctrine. I think the strong, uh, strong impression that church history ought to tell us is that uh, the church has clarified or defined this, if I can go so far as to say that. But uh, obviously church tradition is not proof. It is not definitive. It is not 100%. Certainly we're sola scriptura people. Uh, Chris and I, we're both reformed, but we also must not be solo scriptura. We, we also must consider what the church has been uh, espousing and teaching for, uh, for the duration of its history. So just to, just to recap, I do think uh, that the, these four arguments that Revelation very clearly teaches that the lost person will be tormented and therefore exist consciously in hell forever. Um, that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus uh, helps us understand that death does not mean the cessation of consciousness or existence, but it entails active torment. And so we can, we can at least question whether second death means that there will be cessation of consciousness. Third, um, God's justice demands that someone like Stalin be more than just executed, I think. And then fourth, the, the clear consensus of the church over 2000 years seems to point in the direction of eternal conscious torment. Uh, so with that, I look forward to the rest of our talk. I know Chris is going to have a very good rebuttal uh, waiting for me. So I look forward to that. And um, yes, I, I just want this to be in the spirit of brotherly fellowship of, you know, iron sharpening iron. I am willing to change my mind on this issue, though it would be very irritating and, uh, <laughs> inconvenient for me to do so. I am willing to change my mind on this issue, but uh, these are the things that are preventing me from doing so. So, Chris, I, uh, you have you have ten minutes to change my mind. That's your that's your uh, your time limit. So, with that, I'll, I'll yield the rest of my time, Zach. Yeah, thank you, Ross, for that opening statement. Um, as as Ross has perfectly laid out, Chris is now going to have ten minutes to give his rebuttal and start whenever you're ready, Chris. All right, let me first uh, thank Ross for that great presentation and for his kind words there toward the end. I also want to have a love and re loving, respectful debate, and I think we're having one so far. So hopefully this is a good model for our audiences, um, our audience. <clears throat> Whether or not it's a good rebuttal, I'll let the audience decide. I think it's pretty good, but they may not. Um, first of all, of these four reasons that Ross mentioned was these passages in the book of Revelation. And I already demonstrated that Revelation 14, 9 to 11, and 20, 10 to 15 um, are passages in which the symbolism in John's vision converge teach destruction. Um, you can't just quote those texts and say, oh, this proves my case. This is highly symbolic apocalyptic imagery, and you have to let the scripture tell you how it should be interpreted. And I demonstrated by the interpretation offered by the angel in Revelation 18, and by God himself in Revelation 21, and by John himself in Revelation 20, and the angel in Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. I let the biblical interpretation tell us what the interpretation ought to be. I don't just get to read the, wooden, the, the text in a wooden literal fashion and pretend that that resolves the debate. It doesn't. But one of the interesting passages that Ross mentioned was Revelation 22, 15, in which it said, 
um, outside of the gates are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and so on and so forth. There are two major problems with that argument, though. Firstly, this is after the vision has concluded. You see, back in, uh, in, in chapter 22, verse 5, is where the vision that John is seeing ends. And then Jesus begins speaking to him again after his vision is concluded. So what Jesus is talking about here, where he's talking to John, is not about what's happening outside the gates of the New Jerusalem. Um, he's talking about people who... Um, are who, who right now, speaking as John, refuse to enter the faith and thereby earn themselves the punishment of which this vision warns, um, is, which is going to happen in the distant future, as, as we now know, some 2,000 years later. And if somebody objects on the grounds that it says outside are the dogs, well, that really doesn't mean anything, because in the book of Hebrews, um, uh, the, the author of Hebrews tells Christians right then and then that they've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. But of course, the new Jerusalem hasn't hadn't come down yet. That's going to happen in our future, contrary to the teaching of hyperpreterism, um, which I'm mentioning because of somebody in the audience whom I I'll be debating in a couple of months. So the fact that the dogs are said to be outside the gates in Revelation 22:15 is no support for the doctrine of eternal torment whatsoever. But if it weren't, if 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 you didn't buy the argument I just offered, I'll just repeat what I already said, which is that what is pictured here in the vision is apocalyptic symbolic imagery. Um, you don't get to just say, oh the dogs are outside of the gate, so ergo, it must be eternal torment. No, you have to say, what does that Im imagery mean? And as I've demonstrated in my opening statement, all of the imagery in Revelation 14 and 20 communicates death and destruction, not everlasting life and immortality. Uh, now, as for Luke 16, um, I think that Ross has sort of um, bought into a um, mistaken notion that we conditionalists and annihilationists think that death means cessation of existence. We don't. We let death be what the Bible defines it to be, namely the loss of embodied life and ongoing lack of embodied life. Um, now, we do think that it will end with the cessation of existence in the second death, not because that's what death means, but because Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, that the kind of death that only applies to the body in the first death will also apply to the soul in the second. The Greek word that is translated destroy in Matthew 10, 28 is apollomy. And everywhere in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where it's used in the active Greek voice and in um, and transitively to describe what one person will do to another, it means slay or kill. So Jesus is saying the body dies in the first death, but not the soul both die in the second death. And I'll just add that in James 2.26, James says that when the body is separated from the spirit, it's the body that dies. So death means the end of life. And when a person dies, the first death, the body ceases to be alive, but the soul continues to be conscious. But Jesus says that in the second death, both body and soul will be killed in that way. Um, thirdly, as for Stalin, Paul Pot, and Hitler, and others, I'm really not interested in what Ross thinks is appropriate for uh, an appropriate punishment for such people. I'm really more interested in what God says is the appropriate punishment. Um, and I'll add that uh, even with this notion of an infinitely holy God, on Ross's view, um, uh, infinite punishment by means of everlasting torment means justice is never satisfied. All into eternity future, justice remains to be done throughout eternity. In my view, the infinite punishment of death forever is meted out on that last day. So justice is fully satisfied right then and there, even if it's an infinite punishment because they will be dead forever. Meanwhile, um, 
all throughout human history, death and the cessation of existence have been extremely terrifying to people. Augustine said that if you were to offer a sinner everlasting life in misery or annihilation, they would gleefully choose to be alive forever in torment. Um, even recently, a famous uh, uh, atheist English teacher converted to Christianity because he was terrified of not existing anymore. This idea that a, that a painful death and then nothing afterwards is somehow not very severe is just nonsensical. It makes no sense and it doesn't comport with universal human experience. As for degrees of punishment, that's easily accounted for by the various means by which people are killed. Uh, death by the electric chair is far worse than death by lethal injection. And of course, death by crucifixion is far worse than death than by electric chair. In all three cases, the same punishment is inflicted, namely the ongoing privation of life. But that dying process is experienced quite differently. And while one person like the little old lady down the street might die relatively quickly and painlessly and be forever remembered fondly by those who remain, Hitler, Paul Pot, and Stalin and might suffer for hours on a cross or something like it, as Jesus did, suffering a, a more a more painful punishment uh, or, or means by which that punishment is meted out than that little old lady down the street. And I'll just add that everywhere you can find degrees of punishment mentioned in scripture, that punishment is said to be meted out on that day, even the passages that um, Ross pointed out. It's hard to conceive of how degrees of punishment could be meted out on that day if in fact what is needed to account for that is an eternity of torment that goes well beyond that day. Finally, as for the consensus of the church for over 2000 years, note that Ross is perfectly willing to reject that consensus when it comes to the fact that histor historically, defenders of eternal torment have said the resurrected wicked will be immortal and live forever in hell. I'm not sure why if he's willing to reject that tradition, I shouldn't be willing to reject uh, an eternal torment altogether. Um, and I'll add that yes, the, consens the consensus actually didn't begin until about the time of Augustine. The earliest Christians, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Epistle of Barnabas, Irenaeus of Lyon, they were all conditionalists, annihilationists. And when the reformers, after a thousand years of consensus on, 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 in Roman Catholic th theology, when the reformers protested and broke apart from the Roman Catholic Church, they did so because they thought they were returning not only to what scripture says, but to what the early church fathers said. So the reformers were perfectly willing to, to jettison a thousand years of Roman Catholic tradition in order to return what the earliest fathers taught and what scripture teaches. I'm doing nothing different. Um, and I'll add that this resurgence of conditionalism and annihilationism didn't begin in the 19th century. Beginning in the time of the Reformation, there started to become Protestants who held to this view as well. It just became, it, it reached its peak in the 19th century and now is starting to pick up again. So there is no 2000 year consensus. That's simply a mistake. There's about 1500 years of consensus if you start from about the time of Augustine, but that consensus begins to whittle away at the time of the Reformation. So it's only about a thousand years of consensus. And like I said, the reformers were willing to jettison in a thousand years of, of um, consensus, and so am I. Uh, let's see here. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 was mentioned briefly in passing. I'm not really sure why Ross thinks that eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord sounds like everlasting life and immortality in, in torment or everlasting conscious experience. Um, Paul, in the, very, in the previous verse, verse 8, is alluding to Isaiah 66.15, where God talks about coming in vengeance and flaming and fire. And that scene is one in which God's enemies are slain by the sword and their dead bodies are consumed by fire and by maggots. That's the kind of eternal destruction Paul has in mind. The destruction of dying and never living again and having your corpse be eaten up by fire and by maggots. Um, the, the 
translation away from, which is often leveraged by defenders of eternal torment, is a bad translation. The Greek preposition uh, is just apa, which just means from. I might say destruction from the presence of the Lord, meaning uh, kind of like saying the ship was blown from the water. It's not there anymore. Or I might say the destruction is caused by the presence of the Lord. And in fact, the footnote in the ESV offers that very alternative. So 2 Thessalonians 1.9 is powerful support for my view, and it works against Ross's view. Um, finally, as for what death and life mean, all you got to do is go to scripture for that. The very first chapters of Genesis 1 and 2 tell you that what it means to be a living being, and this includes both humans as well as um, earthbound creatures and waterbound creatures, is to be a body of dust animated by the life-giving breath of God. To die then, just as is proven by Genesis 3, is to no longer be embodied and breathing. And that's why God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden in Genesis 3 with the explicit purpose so that they can't reach out and take from the tree of life and by doing so eat and live forever. But that tree of so they eventually die. But that tree of life reappears at the other end of the Bible in Revelation 22. There it is only the only the saved have access to its fruit, symbolizing that only they will have access to Christ's everlasting life. Only they will live forever. So that's just about my 10 minutes. Um, but uh, I appreciate the opening statement and I look forward to hearing Ross's rebuttal and to the cross-examination. Yeah, thank you for your 10 minute rebuttal. Oh my gosh. Uh, we'll turn to Ross, and whenever you're ready, you can start your rebuttal. Okay, great. Uh, I mean, see, I told you guys I was going to get shellacked. Uh, I mean, Chris is very articulate. He's He knows his stuff, so I really appreciate the challenge. Uh, and I hope I can I hope I can give him um, the, the, something equal to the effort that he has given me. So. Um, very good stuff to think about. So here are my thoughts. Uh, I'll try and put them in some kind of coherent order. So the uh, divine justice not being accomplished in Hitler's case or Stalin's case or Pol Pot's case, uh, because the, the torment goes on forever and ever, trillions and trillions of years forever and ever. Uh, I, I think this fails to consider that there will still be sin. Uh, Hitler and Pol Pot and all the other bad fellows don't suddenly become sanctified. Um, you know, deep into the eternal state, however one measures those kinds of things. Um, so there will still be sin that goes on. And I think it is very possible that that is <clears throat> part of God's judgment, that they're giving, that God is giving the unbeliever over to a debased mind, like it says in Romans 1, 28. Uh, in Genesis 8, 21, uh, it talks about how the intents of man's heart is evil from his youth and even uh, reason of human beings, I think, will be taken away in hell, uh, like it was with Nebuchadnezzar very briefly in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, that's more speculation um, than didactic uh, exegesis or anything like that. But uh, I think that from God's perspective, an eternal torment is a proportional sentence which executes justice, because how long could a person suffer in order to uh, rectify or to justify or to make equal sinning against an infinitely holy God. It it would have to be an infinite amount of time. And since God is an infinite being existing outside of time, I think an eternal torment is an actual proportional sentence. Uh, so the second thing, so, so uh, Chris mentioned that his position is not that the lost cease to exist, but merely that they cease to live. Uh, I think this assumes a physicalist view of human beings, that human beings are uh, not the traditional dualist view where man is both physical body and immaterial soul, which is, I, I think, the majority of Christian tradition yet again. 
Um, I think it should be noted that uh, to not live in Gehenna from Chris's perspective means to no longer exist. Um, certainly he would say that the body still exists while it is here on earth, but uh, cessation of existence is uh, the definition of death in Gehenna, I think from Chris's perspective. So I, I don't believe that cessation of existence is what the Bible means by loss. Uh, and then further, there were a lot of verses on, on perishing and the various kinds of, of death that are experienced. Uh, just recently was brought up the death that is experienced in Genesis 3, and that in Revelation 22, only the saved will live forever by taking the, the fruit of the knowledge of, or the fruit of eternal life. And the issue with I have with this line of thinking is it seems to beg the question. It seems to say that these verses do speak of lost people perishing, but what does it mean to perish? And I don't believe, taking all of Scripture into account, that we should conclude that death means the cessation of existence. So the death that Adam and Eve were promised in Genesis chapter 3, and that <clears throat> the lost will experience it the, in the eschaton, I don't think that that means cessation of existence. Uh, and I relied, uh, I relied pretty strongly on Revelation, and uh, Chris is right to point out that Revelation is symbolic in apocalyptic literature, but I don't think that that means that means we can get from uh, no rest and being tormented. I don't think that is lessened lessened by the existence of symbolism. I, I think if uh, not having rest for day day or night forever and ever and being tormented day or night uh, forever and ever, if that means being annihilated, then I think we're stretching symbolism here. I think we're stretching symbolism and. Uh, he mentioned again that the second death, I, I would appreciate if you could uh, link or uh, explain a little bit where in the Targums, in the Aramaic, I'm a little rusty on my Aramaic, so if you could um, link or show where in the Targums second death means literally dying, uh, I would certainly appreciate that. Because I don't think there's any reason to take uh, the second death from the immediate context. Um as meaning cessation of existence in Gehenna, especially with the things like tormenting is going on and so on and so forth. Uh, one really interesting thing that Chris says is with the different degrees of punishment, uh, he mentions the different degrees of execution, that there will be, uh, you can think of the different degrees of punishment as like, a, um, as being like taking lethal injection or electric chair or something like that. Uh, I don't, think this fits with Jesus's teaching that hell will be worse than being drowned, uh, right? Like he says, it'll be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be drowned in the sea, you know, than to make one of these little ones sin. Uh, that doesn't, that doesn't fit well with me. It doesn't seem in Luke 17 too. And I think this affords me a little bit too much room to work with because if there are differing degrees of suffering involved in the eschatological executions, then it seems that the more severe the sin, the more a person should suffer. And this is kind of what I'm arguing as a traditionalist. Uh, I believe that we all owe an infinite debt to God for our sin. Therefore, we should all suffer an infinite amount, it would think. And, uh, and then, in at least in mathematics, there are different kinds of infinities. Like the amount of numbers between 0 and 1 is infinite, but the amount of numbers between 0 and 2 is also infinite, but it is a greater infinity, maybe as a a halfway decent illustration of how I think that works. 
And if the lost are conscious during the intermediary state, then there are some who would suffer far more than others in what seems to contradict the each according to his works uh, principle. So a relatively ignorant, mostly nice Native American from 5,000 years ago <clears throat> will have suffered far longer than uh, if the world were to end tonight, will have suffered far longer and far worse than, say, uh, Kim Jong-un, assuming he's still alive, which nobody knows. Or take your awful world leader, take your awful uh, dr drug lord criminal alive today, he's going to suffer far less than a relatively ignorant, mostly nice Native American from 5,000 years ago, it seems to me. So that's that's if the lost are conscious during the mediary state, which I don't think Chris affirms, but it is does have to do with annihilation. Um, so, and then the Luke 16, the, uh, the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man, <clears throat> Uh, so, uh, I, I'll skip that one. <laughs> so, uh, Chris brought up that I'm rejecting the tradition of bodily immortality in hell. Now, I don't think I'm rejecting that. I'm just being ambiguous on whether the lost will remain forever. I think the analogy of our experience of life and death is a poor one when compared to what's going to happen in heaven and hell. Uh, think about the fact that uh, how often you have been puzzled what it will be like in uh, in the new heavens and new earth when you'll have a perfect glorified body. Our current situation is such a poor representation for what that will be like for uh, to, to never experience pain or suffering again. Our our current analogy of life is so poor in thinking with with that. So it's I think we should be careful in drawing any hard and fast conclusions about what. Uh, the new earth will be like. And in the same way, I think we should be uh, very weary of going beyond what scripture says, especially in Revelation 20, about um, what it will be like for the lost to remain conscious forever. Will it be bodily? Will it be disembodied? Uh, will it be some kind of third category that's difficult for us to imagine with the ideas of eternality coming into play? Uh, I just think we just don't know. So I would prefer a principled ambiguity on exactly how the lost will remain forever. And then the last thing I'll try and get to is that the consensus didn't begin until Augustine. I mean, well, there's a lot of things that consensus didn't begin until Augustine. Uh, are you about to tell me a minute, Zach? Is that yeah, yeah, that's exactly one minute. You know, one minute. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so there are a lot of things that didn't begin consensus-wise until Augustine. The Pelagian controversy would be a good example. Uh, the... Uh, the, the nature of the deadness of man's heart, is every man a new Adam or not? Uh, a lot of these things didn't begin until Augustine. I don't think that we should necessarily throw them out on that ground. And the Reformation leaders quoted Augustine, you know, uh, very heavily. So uh, I do agree that we shouldn't be beholden to um, church history in all cases, but I think it should be a, a strong, a strong, uh, influence on us what the church has held in majority over the over the centuries. Awesome, thank you, Ross. Uh, so now we're going to transition to some cross ten minute cross examination. So we'll start with Chris. Um, you can lead us off. Awesome, Ross. Have you ever heard me say that death means the cessation of existence? No, no. Uh, okay, I think it's. Okay. I'll, I'll let you answer a little bit more length, but but let me get to a couple of questions first. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
Did you hear me in my rebuttal explicitly saying that the soul subsists consciously beyond the death of the body in the first death? Or did you just miss me saying that? That the, the soul, what's that? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? When I cited Matthew 10, 28, I said the soul subsists consciously beyond the death of the body in the first death. Did you, did you remember hear me, hearing me say that? Oh, I must have missed that. I thought you were a uh, physicalist. Am I wrong in that? I am, but that's not part of my conditionalism. I represent a typical dualist conditionalism. So I'll just ask again, did you hear me explicitly affirm the soul's subsistence beyond, consciously beyond the death of the body and the first death? No, I was just assuming that from what else I've heard of you. My apologies. Okay. That's all right. Did you did you hear me all? Well, did you hear me then say that in Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus says the kind of death that is experienced by the body in the first death extends to the soul in the second. Uh, can you repeat that? I'm sorry. Did you hear me say in my rebuttal when I cited Matthew ten twenty eight that Jesus says the kind of death that extends only to the body in the first death extends to body and soul in the second? No, I did not hear you say that. Okay, so can you at least understand, even if you don't agree, why I would think that although death doesn't mean to cease to exist, um, because Jesus says that the kind of death that applies only to the body in the first death, namely the body becomes inert, inactive, inanimate, that extends also to the, to the soul in the second death. Can you understand why we might think that therefore death in the second death ends in cessation of existence, even though the first doesn't? I could understand your thinking based on that text, yes. All right. Um, were the reformers comfortable rejecting a thousand years of consensus in order to re-embrace what the fathers and scripture taught? I don't think they were willing to reject Augustine. I definitely don't think that, uh, but they were willing to do away with, uh, much of the medieval tradition, like trans, uh, transubstantiation would be a perfect example, though that wasn't a thousand years. It was somewhat close. All right. Augustine died before the end of the fifth century. So by a thousand years leading up to the Reformation, I'm talking post-Augustine. So let me just repeat the question. Were the reformers comfortable rejecting a thousand years of consensus in order to re-embrace what the fathers, including Augustine and scripture taught? Uh, you're, I'm a little sticky on the thousand years part because I don't know that they... Okay, how about 800 uh, years? On certain issues, yes. Okay. All right. So yes, the reformers were comfortable rejecting a thousand years of consensus, at least on some topics, or 800 years, at least on some topics, so that they could re-embrace what the fathers taught and what they saw scripture teaching, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, how, how much of a gap should there be, um, or how long does that consensus need to be before we should be uncomfortable rejecting a consensus? You know, if, if the reformers were comfortable rejecting 800 years of consensus on a topic, um, and you seem to think that if I reject 1,500 years of consensus, that's a problem, where between 8 and 1,500 years does the line suddenly get drawn? So where I'm uncomfortable with is uh, it's very difficult to get any kind of consensus within the first uh, 200 years of the church on, re on really kind okay, of let's talk issue. about that. Let, let's talk about that then for a second. Um, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Epistle of Barnabas. These are all late first, early second century writings. Irenaeus of Lyon is the um, is the middle of the second century. In that time frame, those first 150 years of the church, can you point me to any church father that taught eternal torment? Uh, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. Uh, when did he? What was what, what is his time frame? I think he earned his last name uh, in the uh, maybe around year 170. If I'm, I could be, I could be wrong about that. Okay, so latter half of the second century. I mentioned the first 150 years. So prior to 150 AD, can you point me to any church father who taught eternal torment? 
where is uh, I think Tertullian is somewhere in there. He might be end of the might be end of the second century. That's right. Um, Tertullian is um, 155 to 240 AD. So prior to 150, can you point me to any church father who teaches eternal torment? Uh, no, but I would also say that they don't explicitly teach annihilationism either. They teach things that I would consider ambiguous, like uh, like things like death. Um, they're not okay. explicit in the same way that Justin Martyr is in talking about eternal torment, but I think they could go, a lot of their sayings could go either way. Okay, let's talk about that. Um, Irenaeus of Lyon, this isn't against heresies, book two, chapter 34. He says, it is the father of all who imparts continuance forever and ever on those who are saved. They shall also receive length of days forever and ever. But he who shall reject this gift deprives himself of continuance forever and ever and shall justly not receive from him length of days forever and ever. Can you tell me how that can be interpreted in a way that is consistent with eternal torment? No, I would agree with you on that statement with Irenaeus. I'm certainly not an Irenaeus expert uh, by any means, but just based on that saying, I would say that, yeah, Irenaeus is much closer to, to your view than my view. Okay. Um, Ignatius, if you look through his body of epistles, he consistently uses the Greek words for life and death, um, for, you know, for life, zao, zo, uh, zoe, death, thanatos, apothnesco, etc. Um, all throughout Ignatius's body of literature, he uses those words to refer to bodily life and death. Can you point me to anywhere where, and, and he says that death is uh, what is coming to those who refuse God's gift. Can you point me to anywhere at Ignatius of Antioch where he uses the language of life and death in some other way? Well, no, but I would use those same uh, I would use those same categories as Ignatius is, but mean something different than you would mean. Right, but remember, I just said all throughout his literature, he uses it to refer to bodily life and death. So the question I'm asking you is, can you point me to anywhere in Ignatius's literature where he's talking about something other than bodily life and death when he uses the language of life and death? Oh, I don't. I don't have the Ignatius quotations on me. Okay, the same is true of Clement of Rome. If, for the audience that's watching, you can go to the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel and find videos I've done on Ignatius of Antioch, Clement of Rome, Epistle of Barnabas. These are all people who consistently use the language of life and death throughout their writings to refer to bodily life and death. Can you point me to any of those fathers who refer to life and death in a in some other sense than bodily life and death? I don't have the I don't have the quotations on me. Okay, when Ignatius says that those who speak against this gift of God incur death and that it would be better for them to treat it with respect so they might rise again, would you agree he's denying a resurrection, um, a, a ongoing resurrected embodied life for the wicked? From that reading, it sounded like he was uh, rejecting a resurrection at all. But well, it could certainly be consistent to say that they might rise, but then die again. In other words, they won't participate in ongoing resurrection life. But however you slice it, you agree that, uh, would you agree that he's saying they won't live forever after they've been risen from the dead, right? Well, it sounds like very... he's just talking, well, it sounds like he's just talking about resurrection. So right, I'd so... like to see a little bit more in the context from that one. But you're acknowledging, I... he's saying, you're acknowledging he's saying they won't partake in the resurrection, right? It sounds like what he's saying, but I'm... I'm suspicious that that's what he means. Gotcha. I've read others, other stuff in Ignatius that would, I'd be very surprised to learn that. Okay. I've done the research. I'll, I'll encourage you to watch my video on Ignatius. Let's talk about my, my positive case in the 20, uh, two minutes I've got left in my cross. Um, I argued that because God is perfectly holy, he will not guarantee that evil exists forever by making those who commit it immortal. Can you tell me how God is equally holy if he does guarantee that evil exists forever? Sure. I think, uh, it, I mean, we're 
we are Calvinists, I think. So we, we kind of high five on that. So I think the existence of evil, which God is judging forever, glorifies him, uh, I think. Okay, but there's a problem with that. The, the present reality of evil isn't a challenge to the fact that evil exists because b passages like Ecclesiastes and all through the Psalms promise that one day God will end it. Uh, Psalm 94, 23, for example, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. Meanwhile, passages like Romans 9 talk about God being glorified by the destruction of people, like when Pharaoh was swept away in the Red Sea when after the Israelites had crossed it. So again, I ask, where, on what basis can you argue that God is at least as holy as the God that I'm talking about? Whereas in, if, if in my view, God actually gets rid of evil finally and forever, whereas in your view, he not only permits evil to continue, he guarantees it goes on forever. So your question was, why would they be, why would you know, uh, the God that I'm talking about be more holy or? Or, or at the very least equally holy. How, tell me, tell the audience how you can say that God is as holy as I'm making him out to be when I say he will wipe out evil finally and forever, that evil that he so terribly detests and that he refuses to countenance forever. Um, how is God as holy as he is in that view if instead he guarantees that evil exists forever? Well, I don't think the fact that he will destroy evil means that it won't exist forever. I don't think that that necessarily follows because the, the way I'm reading destroy and, uh, and perish and all of right. those things. I was talking about in my view, he destroys. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. In your view, he guarantees evil exists forever. And the question in the last 15 seconds you've got, maybe you can tell the audience how God is as holy as the God that I'm talking about is if he guarantees that evil exists forever. So my, uh, the, my conception of God being as holy as your conception, that's, is that what it was? Uh, 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 Again, I'm just asking you to tell the audience how God can be as holy as I'm saying he is when I'm saying he will wipe out evil, but you're saying he will make sure sin goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, I'm saying his displaying of wrath, his displaying of justice, which goes on forever, would be as holy or more holy than the uh, conception of God that, that you are suggesting. Okay. I'm out of time. So Yeah. Yeah, awesome stuff. Now we will turn it all around, and now Ross can cross-examine Kristen anyway. He likes to give 10 minutes whenever you're ready. Okay, uh, cool. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm well. How are you doing, Ross? Well, I'm doing really good, thanks. Good. Although I'm asking the questions, okay? Oh, sorry, you're right. I should be <laughs> asking. It's not my turn to cross. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, great. I, I got some questions here that I'd really be interested in, uh, in your answer to, because, I mean, again, you are – You've got a, a 10 year head start on this. Uh, so uh, I am benefiting from this as well. So I appreciate your, um, your, your thoughts here. So are you holding the position in this debate that the lost dead are suffering torment in Hades? I'm not holding a position on the intermediate state at all in this debate. I'm merely representing the body of conditionalists worldwide, which includes both people like me who don't think there's a conscious intermediate state and people who do think there's a conscious intermediate state. Either view is perfectly consistent with the biblical data on hell. Uh, well, it is kind of, at least in, in terms of my arguments, it is kind of important to, uh, to kind of have something to aim at there. Okay, so, well, then, then aim at a conscious disembodied state. So aim at a conscious disembodied swell, and this is going to be tricky, because my question would be, maybe you can answer on behalf of your uh, other conditionalist friends, why are the lost dead suffering torment in Hades? Right. So um, philosophers in the Christian um, 
stream, as well as in other streams, have argued that resurrection isn't even really possible if people don't continue to exist after the death of their body. Um, it's the argument from identity or continuity of identity or whatever. Um, it's this it's this alleged problem of a gappy existence. So the argument goes, if a person dies and then they cease to exist, there is no resurrection. It's just a recreation, almost like a clone. The only way for the person who dies to be the same person who rises is if there's continuity of existence there. So if those philosophers are right, then it's easy to understand why God might preserve a human's soul in a in an unnatural, disembodied half-existence, because it is a half-existence. The, the human beings are designed to be a unity of body and soul. He might preserve a disembodied soul um, in, in a conscious existence until the resurrection so that resurrection is even possible. Now, if you've got wicked people and saved people who go to um, uh, disembodied experience in Hades until resurrection, it only stands to reason that for some of them that experience might be blissful because they have been saved, and for others it may be painful, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the Bible says that one day that intermediate state is going to come to an end. And in fact, when death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire in the vision and revelation, God tells us what that means. Hathanatas ukestai eti, death shall be no more, is what he says in Revelation 21.4. So the symbolism of death and Hades being thrown into the fire symbolizes the annihilation of the intermediate state and of death. Um, I, I wonder if, did you, I'm not sure if you answered that in there. So why do you think that they are uh, suffering rather than just kind of uh, unconscious or sleeping or, or something like that? Like why, why is it torment that they're experiencing rather than just uh, maybe they could just be put on ice or something like that. Right. So in classical theology, the soul is pure consciousness. So the soul can't sleep and go unconscious without ceasing to exist altogether. And as I said, if philosophers are right, or at least some philosophers, resurrection isn't possible without this disembodied con uh, conscious existence between death and resurrection. So the question is, why do they experience something negative when they die instead of something positive? Well, they're not saved. I don't know why we should expect for them when they become disembodied to have a blissful existence. So I guess I just don't understand the relevance of the question or, 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 you know, maybe you can unpack it a little bit more. Okay. Well, I have to ask questions, but um, <laughs> uh, where do you think the Bible defines what it means to, uh, for, uh, to perish? Oh, all over the place. So for example, um, all scholars agree that in Genesis 3, 22 and 23, what it means to, to, to not live forever is exactly what it sounds like. When God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden so they can't eat from, take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, and then the narrator cuts God off in verse 23 and says, therefore the Lord sent him out from the garden. So revoking their access to the tree of life guarantees their eventual physical demise, the end of their embodied life. You see the same thing in the verses preceding John 3.16. There, God, uh, Jesus, or John, there's some debate over whether it's Jesus or John speaking here, says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But Jesus tells us what he means by perish in the immediately preceding verses where he compares himself to the statue of a serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness and which Israelites who had been bitten by otherwise fatal snakes, fatally venomous snakes, snakes, those people could look at that staff and literally be saved from dying. That's what Jesus means by perish when he then says in the very next verse that believers in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I'll just add one more. In Romans 6.23, when Paul says the wages of sin is death, he tells you in the very next verses what he means by that. Because after Romans 6.23, and of course you know um, that in the original there were no chapter breaks, in the very next verse, which we call the beginning of chapter 7, but it's just the next verse, he goes on to talk about how a person is, um, a married person is 
only bound to the person they're married to so long as they live. But as soon as one of them dies, that per the other person's free. So when Paul says the wages of sin is death, he means embodied death, the, the loss of, of embodied life. It's all over the scriptures, all over. Do you think the, uh, the the continuity that you're pointing out between Romans six and seven? Do you think you don't think that there are different contexts? Uh, considering the one is talking about eschatology and the other one is talking about uh, it's using an analogy based on our common experience. I'm just going by the simple flow of his language. You remove the verses and the chapters since those weren't there. Paul goes from saying, from speaking of death and life, um, and then he speaks in the very next verses of left death and life. And it's actually, I think, your position that is going to struggle to say, oh, all of a sudden, without any indication that he's suddenly shifting the meaning of those words, he's shifting the meaning of those words. But I'll defend myself by just pointing out that this language of death versus eternal life had just been used by, Ro by Paul in the earlier chapter in Romans 5, where he says that just as sin came in of the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We know that Paul is talking about physical death, the loss of embodied life, because he says death reigned from Adam to Moses when there was no law. Well, the reason people know that people died from Adam to Moses is because those people aren't around anymore. So, in, and, and it's in that context that he says the free gift is not like the trespass. He says um, that the free gift isn't like the result of that one man's sin. Um, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, he's talking about physical death, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And that's the same language he uses in Romans 6.23. So both before Romans 6.23 and after, he's using the language of life and death to speak of life and death. Okay. Um, so would you say it's an accurate depiction of your view, and please feel free to correct me here, that uh, Revelation's uses of symbols and the fact that it's a highly stylized form of literature, would you say that those facts mean that it was never intended to depict the end in literal terms? Oh yeah, it's 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 undeniable that the imagery in the book of Revelation is not meant to depict the future in literal terms. And I'll tell you the reason it's undeniable, because all through scripture, that's how apocalyptic prophecy works. When Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's cut baker and bearer uh, and baker in, in Genesis 40, I think it is, and then in Genesis 41, when Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, when Daniel interprets the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, when when an angel interprets Daniel's dreams, and when an angel interprets John's dreams, this is consistent all throughout scripture. The future is foretold but the future isn't what's taking place in the imagery. What's taking place in the imagery represents what's going to take place in the future. That's just standard biblical hermeneutics. So uh, do you believe that there will actually be a new heaven and new earth? Um, I think the language of new heavens and new earth, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't exist only in the book of Revelation. Um, it occurs, for example, in Isaiah. Um, I'm thinking in particular of Reve uh, Isaiah 65, I believe, maybe even Isaiah 66 and elsewhere. But what does new heavens and new earth mean? Well, I don't think it literally means that this cosmos is going to be eradicated and replaced by a new one. I think it's talking about restoration. And yes, I think that's going to happen, but not because I see that imagery in the book of Revelation. It's because I see that all throughout scripture. Uh, I, I definitely know of Isaiah 65, but um, you can, can you think of any other places off the top of your head where new heavens and new earth is, is used? Uh, I can do a quick search if you like. Um, so it appears in Isaiah 65, uh, Isaiah 66, 2 Peter. Um, there's three right there. With, uh, with Isaiah 65, is, is it consistent with your understanding that that, uh, that new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 65 entails birth and, and death and living 100 years old? 
Uh, no, Isaiah 65, I don't think is trying to literally say that people will um, be born and die. And in fact, I recently did a directed study under a professor at Fuller on this very passage and some other passages in Isaiah 66 uh, and, and, and 25 and 26. And there's no indication that he's actually saying that people will be born. He's saying that um, the, the person, he's using the language of birth and death to emphasize that there will be no death in this time period that he's talking about. Meanwhile, earlier in Isaiah 26, Isaiah explicitly says that the wicked won't partake in resurrection, but the saved will. So Isaiah seems to work against the idea that the resurrected lost will remain that way forever. If I can you squeeze- have about 30 seconds, just so you know. Yes, you're all oh. good. You can squeeze another one in. Squeeze another one, you're good. Sweet. Okay, uh, very, very interested in this one. Um, if hell is, by temporal percentage, if we can if we can slice it down like that, which I don't know if we can, uh, if it's approaching an infinite slice of the pie is cessation of existence, then uh, why does Jesus describe it as weeping and gnashing of teeth, since that's the most minuscule percentage possible of what hell could be like? Right, so he doesn't describe hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. What he does is he's weeping and gnashing of teeth to describe the experience of people in parables who are realizing that they've been excluded from the kingdom of God. Meanwhile, he uses it in texts where it can't be eternal torment. It has to be death and destruction. For example, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. In that parable in verse uh, 23 of Matthew 13, or no, not, not that one, sorry, verse 30, um, he says, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, the Greek word katakaio, meaning to completely burn up, reduce to ashes, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then a few verses later, when he interprets that parable, he says in verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age, the Son of Man will throw into the fiery furnace all evildoers, and in that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So weeping and gnashing of teeth is what people experience um, when they are excluded from God's kingdom, they realize that, and they're burned to death, which is the language of Malachi 4, where the wicked are reduced to ashes beneath the feet of the righteous. The weeping and ashing here can't have to do with eternal torment because it's specifically in a context of annihilation. Awesome. Thank you guys for those cross-examinations. Uh, we'll now go into closing statements before we go into some Q&A. Uh, whenever you're ready, Chris, you have five minutes. All right. Um, I never prepare a closing statement, and so they're never very good uh, because I want to be able to respond to what has transpired in the debate. What I'll just spend my five minutes doing now is sort of recap what my case was and then maybe mention some of the things that have transpired during the course of the debate. Firstly, I argued that because God is perfectly holy, he will not countenance sin forever. He will not ensure that evil forever exists to stain his cosmos by making those who commit it immortal. Meanwhile, Ross believes that God will ensure that evil forever stains his cosmos by making those who commit it immortal. I also argued that the justice of God means that God will not ensure that justice is never fully satisfied by making those who commit evil immortal. Meanwhile, Ross thinks that justice will never be fully satisfied because whether people are ongoing are continuing to sin or not, either way, there always remains punishment left to be meted out. There will always remain sin that has yet to be punished fully. So in Ross's view, justice is never fully satisfied. In mine, it is. When it comes to Christology, and this never came up in the debate, which is a little unfortunate, but maybe it'll come up in the course of cross-examination, I pointed out that the biblical explanation of substitutionary atonement is that Jesus died in the place of people who deserve to die so that they can instead live. It stands, it follows logically, therefore, that those in whose place Jesus didn't die, because we're Calvinists here, or if you're a non-Calvinist, those who fail to self-appropriate Jesus' saving death via faith must therefore die as the wages of their sin, not be rendered immortal and live forever in hell. 
And then I also pointed out that the Bible says that immortality is only secured um, for those people who are united to the resurrection, uh, to, to Jesus in his resurrection, um, because as Paul says in Romans, he, res he we are united to him in a resurrection like his, and after he was raised, he never died. Only those of us who are united in Christ can rise and never die again. Then I turned to eschatology, and I pointed out that eternal punishment in Matthew 25, 41 to 46 is punishment inflicted by eternal fire, um, and it's death forever, not immortality and eternal life in hell. Um, I demonstrated that in Jude, and we could also look at Matthew 18, 8, 9, and other places to show that that's what eternal fire means. Um, and eternal punishment, it's obvious that that cannot be eternal life, and yet the doctrine of eternal torment offers that as precisely the fate of the wicked in hell, everlasting life. Then I looked at Mark 9, 48, and it's the passage that Jesus is citing in Isaiah 66, 24. And I demonstrated that when the Bible uses the language of unquenchable fire, it's referring to fire that can't be extinguished before it does what it's meant to do. And the same thing is true of undying worms who, like the um, scavengers in Jeremiah 7, won't be frightened away from the corpses upon which they feed. So unquenchable fire and undying worms can't be stopped prematurely from completely consuming corpses. It has nothing to do with resurrected immortals suffering forever in hell. Finally, I demonstrated that all of the symbols in Revelation 14 and 20 converge, that smoke rising forever from eternal torment in the lake of fire collectively symbolizes dying a second time and forever. And, and I mean no offense here, but Ross literally only had one response to this. Namely, it can't mean not suffering forever and, and not being um, having no rest day or night because the symbolism says that's what they will have. Well, so what? We don't get to say what the symbolism can or can't mean. Imagine if I went back to um, the dreams of Pharaoh and I said, you know what? Um, there can't, it must be a vision of the future in which there are seven cows that eat others, that seven other cows. Well, obviously I'd be mistaken because Joseph told Pharaoh what that imagery means and it has nothing to do with cows. Um, and it has nothing to do with one thing eating another. So we don't get to just pretend as if we know what the symbolism in Revelation and other similar books can or can't mean. We have to let the interpretation offered in the text itself tell us what it means. And I demonstrated that when the angel interprets the um, the beast's fate in the fire, he says the beast goes to destruction using language that communicates the kind of death and destruction I'm talking about, not immortality and everlasting life in hell. And I pointed out that when the angel interprets the vision of Daniel's beast being thrown into the fire, he interprets it as the annihilation of a, of a kingdom. Them, which is exactly, in fact, the NASB uses the word annihilation. Um, so that's consistent here. I also pointed out that when John interprets the second, the, the lake of fire in Revelation 20, 14, and God does so in Revelation 21, 8, they interpret it as symbolizing the second death. Well, think about how interpretation of this kind of imagery works. You take what's taking place in the bizarre, perplexing imagery, and you explain it in plain, straightforward language. If it weren't plain, straightforward language, it would fail to in be interpretation. You can't take a bizarre metaphor and then interpret it as with another metaphor that's equally unclear. It has to be plain, straightforward language. And the plain, straightforward, straightforward way to understand second death is the second time people will physically die, which is exactly how the Targums use it in such passages as the uh, Jeremiah 51, 39 and Isaiah 22, 14. Um, that's all the time I've got. So I'll just say I look forward to cross or to a Q&A. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Uh, five minutes for you, Ross, for a closing statement. You can start whenever you're ready. Okay, great. Um, well, yeah, thank you, Chris, for a very, uh, very lively and very informative and very fast-paced uh, debate. You've put a lot of information out there. I hope I was able to represent the represent my view as well as I could. 
Um, but uh, but thank you again for your scholarship and your expertise in this area and for the the challenge that you've provided. I, I really do appreciate it. And thank you, Zach, also for hosting this. Um, you've uh, you've been very gracious and very kind as always. I really appreciate that. Uh, so just with the time I have remaining, I'd just like to resummarize the points that I tried to argue. Hopefully, I uh, I argued them as well as I could have, and um, if hopefully you found them convincing, if they are indeed true. So I, I would just like to re uh, refresh in reverse order. I still stand by the consensus over the church over uh, roughly 2,000 years. I certainly do think that there was a lot of ambiguity and disagreement within the first 200 years. You had people um, who uh, certainly sound like they are um, annihilationists and Irenaeus, and then you have other people who are certainly uh, uh, eternal conscious tormentors. That uh, sounds weird. Injustin Justin Martyr. And so there's a lot of ambiguity in the first couple centuries, but you have a uh, consensus developing after Augustine and going through the Reformation all throughout the medieval period. And that to me is about as good as you get on almost any doctrine. So it's difficult for me to say, uh, it's difficult for me not to feel the weight from that kind of consensus with, within church history. Uh, so I think that is very, very important. And uh, then we, we look at this issue that we've talked about at, at length here, the justice of God in dealing with eternality of torment and the existence of sinners for forever. And also, uh, how do we deal with someone like Joseph Stalin or Pol Pot or Adolf Hitler and the atrocities that they've committed? Uh, I, I do still stand by the proportionality. It seems that we're promised in the New Testament. The proportionality that seems like we're promised is more consistent with the uh, eternal nature of God's punishment that uh, even the death, I think, of a human being um, maybe is insufficient to um, to pay for the sin against an infinite God for which they had an infinite obligation to obey and uh, God is in himself infinitely holy. I think an infinite punishment of infinite duration should be what we would expect and uh, I think consistent with the intermediary state a conscious torment is what we should expect. And I don't think the second death should be any different than the first death in that, uh, in that regard. And then uh, I brought up the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which again talks about this intermediary state, which I think is very important. I don't think that uh, there is no cessation of consciousness within in the intermediary state. And I don't think we should expect it in the second death either. And then finally, or firstly, what I tried to argue from the book of Revelation, I know we had we had a lot of back and forth on this. We had a lot of uh, discussion of what it means for it to be apocalyptic literature and what exactly we can take from that. Uh, I don't think that saying that second death is plain and straightforward. Uh, I, I don't think second death is a plain and straightforward term to uh, to symbolize the uh, symbolize the meaning of Revelation twenty. Um, we don't experience a lot of second deaths. And if we are to assume from the first death that it did not result in the cessation of consciousness, then I don't know why the plain and straightforward meaning of that second death would mean it would be vastly different than the first death. That doesn't seem any very plain and straightforward to me. It seems that the plain and straightforward reading of Revelation 20 and Revelation 14 would be to think not that uh, tormenting and not being able to rest day and night forever or never, that that actually means annihilation. I, I don't think that that works. I don't think it's uh, it's a natural reading of the text. Uh, 
So uh, with that being said, uh, Chris brought up a lot of very great points that I'm going to reflect on, and I invite all of us to do so as well. Uh, this is an important issue, but it is not a definitional or essential issue. We can have brotherly disagreement on this. Um, and uh, yeah, I would just commend us all to further study and to considering what we have said and I'd like to thank Chris and Zach again for a very good debate, and I look forward to the Q&A. Yeah, thank you, Ross and Chris, for both participating in this debate. It's been very brotherly. It's been very interesting, a lot of things to think about, and I think you guys have been very respectful, but at the same time, uh, arguing for your points very well. Um, so we're going to go into some Q&A. Uh, the first few questions I'm not going to be able to put up on the screen, but hopefully as we get further into it, I will be able to do to just the live chat and how it works on StreamYard. Uh, but the first question comes from Nick Quiet. It's from for Chris. He says... I think Christians need to recapture a proper theology of death. We've watered it down. How can we begin to recapture this concept of death as an enemy to be undone? Yeah, uh, it's Nick Quint, but that's okay. Um, he's got a weird, oh weird spelled last name, so <laughs> nobody else. Um, yeah, so uh, it's true. I mean, you don't have to be a physicalist like Nick and I are um, and to believe that when you're dead, you're unconscious to embrace the reality that death is a terrible thing. Jesus wept when people died. Paul says death is the final enemy to be destroyed. And by the way, that's one reason why the hyperpreterist in the audience is going to lose in the debate in August is because he believes that death, that there will be all sorts of enemies that go on existing forever. Uh, meanwhile, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. Um, it's interesting in the in the story, historical narrative or parable, whatever it is, of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, the text says that the that the that Lazarus is being comforted in the bosom of Abraham, and if you look into how that word comforted is used in the scriptures, it seems to be consolation, like you're 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 being sort of like when a baby's crying and you console them, right? That's what it means to be comforted. You see, um, even even in a traditional dualist Christianity. A disembodied um, uh, half existence is just that. It's a half existence. Um, the Bible celebrates embodied life. Embodied life is a gift. It's it's a wonderful, innately good thing. Um, that's why as Christians we oppose abortion. It's why many of us oppose euthanasia. Um, and and I, I frankly think that part of the reason why we as Christians have lost this idea of death being a terrible thing and life being a wonderful, amazing thing is in part because of this doctrine of eternal torment. After all, if you think that the gospel is really just a matter of real estate, whether you go to enjoy life, whether you go to enjoy life forever or hate life forever, it's just a matter of real estate. The Bible says that the gospel is a matter of life and death. And I think that when we, as the church more and more accepts this view, um, we will appreciate just how precious life is and just how terrible death is. Thank you. Uh, next question comes from Zach Avery. This is from both of you. So I guess we can just start with Ross and go to Chris. Um, it says, if Satan is said to be crushed, uh, which he puts in parentheses, which echoes warfare language and violent death uh, and the quotation in Romans 16, 20, how is this consistent with him being tormented forever and ever in John's vision? Well, I think being uh, being crushed is a little bit easier, seems easier to deal with than being destroyed or being, uh, you know, um, all that would go with that. I think uh, being crushed kind of sounds a little bit more like, you know, like it doesn't cease to exist or anything like that. I think um, I can easily harmonize my reading in Revelation 20 with that section in Romans. Uh, so I, I don't see the contradiction there. 
I'd have to know what verse specifically he's talking about. Um, but when you look at what it means for a human to be crushed, it doesn't mean to be live and immortal. Um, so for example, Jesus says in, or it said in Mark 3, 9, that Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. You know, being crushed, I mean, what happens in a sports arena where there's a, a mass exodus from the arena and people get trampled under the many feet of the other people? They die, because, you know, because they're, they're crushed. Oh, I think the verse that he's probably talking about is Romans 16, 20. Uh, the Greek is suntribo. Um, and I could spend our time today looking at um, how that word means um, or what that word means. I, I think I'd probably just say um, this text probably doesn't tell us a whole lot. In fact, um, arguably, you know, the Greek says it will that Satan would be crushed soon. And this is in you know the first century. So probably the crushing of Satan here doesn't have to do with the final punishment in the first place. Awesome. Uh, next question is for Ross from Tyler Fowler. He says, do, do you, Ross, believe that immortality is a gift given only to believers in Jesus Christ? Uh, yeah, certainly. I think scripture is pretty clear on that. Um, I think when uh, traditionalists have traditionally used immortality to refer to uh, everyone, both lost and saved, I think that's maybe sloppy language. I think that's maybe importing categories or at least categorical language from other disciplines, maybe Platonism. Um, but I think uh, using language like immortality to refer to the lost is unhelpful. Uh, I would just simply say that they will exist forever, uh, consciously exist forever, but I wouldn't use any kind of language like immortality to refer to this uh, bodily glorification that happens with believers in the, in the new earth. I certainly, so I would agree that uh, this bodily immortality, this glorification that happens with believers does not happen with um, the lost. Uh, next question is for Chris from Zach Avery. Uh, he says, how is God's attribute of justice displayed through eternity if hell is temporary? Yeah, well, I mean, Paul's one who says in Romans that the destruction of Pharaoh uh, in the Red Sea was him showing his power. Um, what Paul is talking about is that God um, hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't immediately let the people go. And it disenabled him to show his power and his, and his wrath. And then finally, he destroys Pharaoh in the Red Sea, along with the rest of his armies, after Israel has successfully crossed. God's, God demonstrates his justice by, and this is all throughout Scripture, by the destruction of sinners. I mean, I quoted Psalms and Ecclesiastes and so forth. The, 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 the tolerance, the patience that God is showing sinners now is going to come to an end one day when he demonstrates his justice by finally destroying the wicked. Um, you don't need the wicked to constantly be, you don't need the wicked to be made immortal and live forever in hell um, in order for uh, God to display his justice. He can do it with the death penalty, just like governments all around the world and throughout human history have done for the worst of crimes, the death penalty. Meanwhile, if God does make sure that sin exists forever, um, then number one, you have a problem with God's holiness. And number two, justice actually never gets done. You see, if, if, the, wicked, if, if the wicked have to suffer in torment forever, either because infinite punishment is everlasting torment, which it doesn't follow. I mean, eternal annihilation is infinite punishment too. But if it's infinite punishment in the sense of eternal torment, then there's forever punishment left to be uh, to be undergone. But if people and if people continue to sin and they and they accrue additional penalty while they're sinning, but while being punished, then there's forever sin left unpunished. 
So it's actually the doctrine of eternal torment that's inconsistent with God's justice because justice is never fully satisfied in that view. On my view, the everlasting punishment, the infinite punishment of annihilation is secured on that day, exactly as passages like First, uh, Second Thessalonians 1.9 say and other passages which talk about degrees of punishment happening on that day, not stretched over trillions of years. Awesome. Uh, next question is from, I'm actually going to switch the positioning like this, if this works for you guys. And I guess Ross's head just got really big. Yeah. You can put questions up on the live stream. So this works a little bit better. Uh, it's from Greg Chesser. He says, the lamb's not present in hell, is he? I don't know exactly what. And he may be referencing Jesus as the, the, the lamb of God. I'm not completely sure. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say he's in hell. Um, I mean, there's certainly debate as to whether he went down in, in Hades or not. I, I know that's a, a separate issue, but no, uh, Jesus is, the lamb is not in Gehenna. I think, uh, that it, the language in scripture is one of separation is one of, of banishment. Uh, that's the, the sense I get. I don't think the lamb will be present in hell. Uh, next question is for, from Michael Miano. He says, what is what we... What is what we read in Daniel 12 and Revelations 19 through 20 is metaphoric for the resurrection of the dead ones of Israel? I'll take this one if you don't mind. Yeah, um, Mike Miano is a hyperpreterist. He believes that all biblical prophecy was fulfilled in the past. He denies a future physical resurrection of the dead, and he believes that the Bible's frequent language about resurrection is just a non-physical, corporate, spiritual resurrection of uh, of the church. Um, and he's and he means what if what we read in Daniel 12 and Revelation 19 to 20 is metaphoric for the resurrection of the dead ones of Israel? Um, what if is like asking what if a married what if what if a person is a married bachelor? It's illogical. All throughout Scripture resurrection is very clearly a physical experience. In fact, there's nowhere in scripture where the words translated raise and resurrect or whatever have to do with what um, this hyperpreterist is saying it means. Uh, Isaiah 26 talks about the bodies of God's people rising. Daniel 12, 2, bodies. Um, the, 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 you know, there was diversity of um, views in the intertestamental period. Not all Jews believed in resurrection, but most did. And all of them meant by resurrection resurrection, physical life from death. Um, so when people like Jesus and Paul use this language of resurrection, um, they are siding with that side of the intertestamental debate that held that the, the dead would one day be raised from the dead, because those people who didn't think that they would be raised from the dead never used the language of resurrection to describe what they did think was going to happen. It was universally language understood to refer to bodily resurrection. So yeah, again, this question is like saying, what if a person is a married bachelor? It's just simply illogical. Uh, next question from, is from Greg Chester. It's for Ross. He says, isn't the best interpretation of the second death that it's a second death of the wicked? Uh, certainly. That's that's what it says. But um, I don't think that the second death of the wicked should be different from the first death in in terms of its, uh, in terms of ongoing existence in the first death, uh, conscious existence. And I don't think that um, the second death necessarily implies cessation of existence just because it's called the second death. Um, now, I, I think I need to brush up on my Aramaic a little bit um, to be able to read the Targums because I, I, I am not familiar with that source. But based on the context of Revelation 20 um, and uh, the other scriptural teaching of what we can expect in the intermediary state, I don't think second death should be interpreted as no longer existent. 
another question from Ross here from Greg Chester. He says, uh, is Hades the same place as hell? Jehana, uh, was the rich man judged by God yet? Uh, no, I thought I, at least I hoped to make that clear. I don't think that, um, the parable of the rich man or the story parable, whatever it is, rich man, Lazarus. Uh, I, I don't think that's, that's clearly designated as Hades. It's not Gehenna. It's not the final state. So no, the, the final judgment hasn't happened yet. All right, and we got one more question from Ross here. Uh, it says, so it seems to you that Stalin's wages for a sin should be eternal, eternal conscious torment, not death. Well, I would not interpret death. I mean, I think that question is begging the question. Um, I don't think death is cessation of existence. So I expect in death for there to be an eternity of conscious torment. So I would have no problem with what Paul means in uh, Romans 6.23. Uh, next question is from Tyler Fowler for me. Uh, it's a Zach, what position do you hold? Um, in the past, I was very confident in the eternal conscious tournament just because I never was really exposed to anyone's um, views like Chris. And now I'm kind of figuring it all out. I'm not really sure. I'm not definite on any position and nowhere close to willing to be on either side of a debate on this topic. That's why I'm grateful for Ross and Chris. Um, Next question here is, wow, Ross is really getting the heat right now. Uh, from Tyler Fowler, Fowler, he says, Ross, why does punishment have to be eternal if God is eternal? I'm not making the connection. Uh, I don't think I made that connect. I tried to make that connection in the debate that because God is eternal, uh, punishment has to be eternal. I think maybe what he was referring to uh, when Chris and I were discussing, um, he's of the view that, if hell goes on forever, if, if the conscious or if the lost are conscious forever and sinners are existing forever, then uh, there never is any kind of uh, justice being done. It's just being prolonged. There's always more punishment. But my point was that from God's perspective, as an eternal being, uh, the, the future is um, the future and the past to him are very you know, confusing things from our perspective. So from God's perspective, an eternal punishment may be a finished punishment from his perspective. So, uh, Next question is for Chris from Tyler Fowler. He says, how does the cessation of existence differ than what you believe about the, you get, you can. I think he means ultimate. <laughs> alt, alt, well, I need to stop. I need to like read the words in context and not just like try to pronounce each word. Um, end of the reprobate or does it? Right. So I do think that the ultimate end of the reprobate is the cessation of existence, but not because it's called death. This is this is something that has continued to sort of perplex me that Ross continues to say things like, oh, I don't think death means cessation of existence. Yeah, neither do I. You see, the reason why, or one reason why the Bible indicates that, or one way in which the Bible indicates that the uh, the wicked will cease to exist in the second death is because Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, that, that, that death only applies to the body in the first death, but not the soul. But he says both body and soul will be killed in Gehenna. That's what that Greek word apollomy means when it's used in the act of voice to describe what one personal agent does to another as it is in Matthew 10, 28. So for example, Herod is said to want to apollomy the baby Jesus. Nobody thinks, oh, he wanted to ruin or lose the baby Jesus. No, he wanted to kill him. The Pharisees wanted to apollomy Jesus. They didn't want to ruin or lose or waste him. They wanted to kill him. This is what apollomy means. It's, a, it's an emphatic way of slaying, saying kill like slay. So what Jesus says is don't fear men because they can only kill your body. They can't kill your soul. Um, so in the first death, the body becomes inanimate, inert, in, uh, lifeless. 
but the soul continues being pure consciousness continues to subsist consciously after the death of the body when that is reunited with the resurrected body and then both body and soul are slain in Gehenna as Jesus teaches in Matthew 10 28 um, this lifelessness this inertness this um, this fact of being inanimate and completely inactive all of that that's true of the body will also be true of the soul. And because the soul, classically speaking anyway, is pure consciousness, if it experiences the kind of inertness, inactivity, lifelessness that the body does in the second death, then they will cease to be um, altogether and forever. So, you know, let's, I, I really hope that one day this debate can be had on more meaningful ground, because it continues to be the case that defenders of eternal torment pretend as if what we think is death means cessation of existence. And then they'll say things like, I don't see any reason why the second death should be cessation of existence if the first death isn't. But they're they're not paying attention to what we're actually saying. I, I, don't, I don't mean about, about you, Ross, but in general, they're not paying attention to what we're saying. We're saying the death that applies only to the body in the first death, Jesus says, will apply to the soul as well in the second. Uh, next question is for Ross from Star Welters. Uh, they say, Ross, why do you appeal to tradition for eternal conscious torment and dualism, yet discard it with respect to those uh, alive in hell? Uh, you are mute. mute. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I'm not discarding tradition. I think we mean the same things. I just think my language is a little bit more precise. So I'm not disagreeing with them on whether the loss will be conscious forever. I think we would all high five on that. Uh, I just think the usage of terminology like immortality or um, or or unnecessarily affirming that um, the lost will remain bodily in hell, which we don't even know what that we couldn't even know what that means from our perspective, and uh, and and I should point out that most of the Reformed confessions, though not all of them, don't affirm the explicitly don't affirm the fact that they will be bodily uh, there there will be bodily existence in hell. I think the Belgic ex, uh, confession is the exception, but all the other ones just affirm that there will be conscious torment. So I, I'm consistent with them in that regard. Another question for Ross from Greg Chesser. He says, do you like Jesus stretches, do you like Jesus stretches the vision of being cast into the lake of fire when he told John it, it is the second death? My eyes are squinting as I read that question. I'm not sure. I can't make heads or tails of it either. Yeah, we could move on if you don't completely know what's going on here okay uh let's just move on uh next question is from zach avery for for chris he says seemingly the relevant passages in the bible uh taken collectively and plainly presuppose eternal conscious torment and that um ci condition has been to has to be presumed and then proven if eternal conscious torment was true what more needed to be said? Um, so, th so there's a lot in this question. What are your kind of general thoughts on this, Chris? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of thoughts. Uh, first of all, it's a simple, bald assertion that can't be demonstrated that the relevant passages taken collectively plainly presuppose eternal torment. Um, quite the opposite is true. Uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Isaiah 26, the wicked will not rise. Their bodies will not rise, but the, right, the righteous bodies will. Um, uh, Matthew 25.46, uh, eternal punishment is not eternal life. It's eternal death. 
wrath. Second uh, Thessalonians 1 9, eternal destruction using language from Isaiah 65, uh, 66 about the wicked being slain and their bodies being consumed. I mean, on and on and on it goes. The only texts that on their face seem to teach eternal torment are Revelation 14 and 20. But why would we settle for the surface level reading of the most apocalyptic and most difficult book to interpret in all of scripture? I'm not saying we can dismiss it, but what I am saying is you can't just accept the plain level reading. You've got to exercise sound hermeneutics to figure out what they're saying. And as I demonstrated in my opening, the symbolism in both of those passages converges to teach conditionalism and annihilationism. So yeah, I mean, the Bible doesn't plainly presuppose ECT. It's quite the opposite. It, what has to be proven is eternal torment and, and no case has succeeded in 2000 years. Uh, next question is from Redeemed Acres, Tennessee. I can't find it in the live chat, so I'll just read it for you guys. Um, it says, if infinite punishment is warranted for a Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, etc., due to their crimes, then the same will be suffered by the little old lady, right? So I'm guessing this is a question for Ross, of course. Yeah, so I guess it's getting at, uh, maybe it's getting at degrees of punishment. Um, it's like, I, I tried to give a little bit of analogy. I don't know if uh, maybe it's only a math geek analogy, but uh, at least mathematicians recognize the difference between greater and lesser infinities. So the difference between the amount of numbers between zero and one is infinite, but also the amount of numbers between zero and two are infinite. So mathematicians recognize the kind of perplexing, difficult for us to understand uh, greater and lesser infinities that exist within mathematics. So I think the same thing could maybe be applied uh, via analogy to the uh, to the issue of Hitler and the nice little old lady across the street, uh, which the little old lady across the street when I was growing up was not very nice, um, but probably probably a little bit nicer than Hitler, I would imagine. Um, but so I do I do think that it is fair for even the little old lady across the street to receive an eternal uh, to receive an eternal punishment, uh, an eternal conscious punishment, because uh, I think Jonathan Edwards was the one who pointed this out the degree to which she was obligated to obey was infinite. And also uh, the uh, deserving nature of God is infinite, that he is infinitely beauty, beautiful and holy and wonderful. And uh, so both of those things confer an infinite punishment. Uh, however, there still can be, even though it seems perplexing, greater and lesser degrees of infinity, which I think um, is the most consistent reading of scripture. So it's difficult for us to understand as uh, beings who have never experienced eternity. Uh, next question is for Chris from Gary Stevens. He says, Chris, do you believe 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when it says death will be swallowed up in victory? Oh, yeah. And this is a really big problem for the doctrine of eternal torment. And I'll tell you why. Um, we know that what Paul is talking about by death here is physical death. We know it because he's talking about when the righteous are raised from the dead and made immortal. We know it because he's here quoting Isaiah 26 in which, uh, or Isaiah 25, in which the death that is swallowed up in victory is the death that is covered over all nations. It's the it's the physical death um, that he's, this even this language of swallowing up is, is, is alluding to to the language of Sheol opening its mouth and swallowing people who go down to it in death. And then in Isaiah 26, the very next chapter, he says that God's people will rise, their bodies will rise, but the oppressors of Israel um, that have oppressed them throughout history, their bodies will not rise. Now you can make sense of that in my view, because Isaiah could be looking into the distant future eschaton after the risen, the lost have been raised and then die again and never live again. It's much more difficult to make sense of that if you believe the lost will rise and remain 
and risen forever. And you've basically got to say that Isaiah was wrong and I'm an inerrantist, so I don't have that option available to me. But the real reason why Isaiah 15 or 1 Corinthians 15 is, a, is it challenges and disproves eternal torment is because Paul says that death is swallowed up in victory when the righteous rise immortal. This is important because he says death is the last enemy to be destroyed. The Greek word that is used is katargeo, and that Greek word means to cease to happen. So what Paul is saying is that when the resurrected law or when the resurrected saved are made immortal and all of God's enemies other than death have been destroyed, then death itself will have finally and forever been destroyed because all who remain are immortal and live forever. So you can see how death is uh, the last enemy to be destroyed on the very day when the righteous are raised and made immortal. That fits well with annihilationism and conditional immortality. On Ross's view and on the traditional view of eternal torment, the resurrected saved are made immortal. Um, and then uh, uh, there are there remain enemies throughout all eternity. Throughout all eternity, there remain enemies. But Paul said death is the last enemy to be katharge'o, the last enemy to be destroyed. So 1 Corinthians 15 is it lands squarely in the favor of my side of this debate, and it will prove forever to be a real challenge to the doctrine of eternal torment. Uh, next question is for Ross from Tyler. Fowler, he says, Ross, what would convince you to change your mind? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, so I'm much more open to having my mind changed on this issue than, uh, than say something like, um, you know, did, does can you demonstrate exegetically that Jesus rose from the dead or that the Trinity is something like that? I, I really don't expect anybody to convince me that uh, the Bible is not a Trinitarian document. I, that's really not gonna happen. Um, I feel very confident in uh, my ability to defend that and uh, to demonstrate that. Uh, this is a different issue. Um, I, I am willing to have my mind changed. What would it take to have my mind changed? Uh, maybe a little bit of Aramaic would help, but um, but no, I, I, I mean, I'm not really sure. It's just kind of one of those things that you have to wrestle with for a while, I think. Uh, it reminds me of my conversion from uh, kind of an Arminian, Wesleyan sort of perspective to Calvinism. Uh, it's not something that was a, a one argument kind of thing. It's something I had to wrestle with for literally a year. Uh, where I, I, I was thinking about it, reading stuff, listening to debates probably every day um, or every other day. <laughs> so I think that's probably what it would take. It, it's going to be a while um, if, if I'm going to change my mind, but right now my, my mind is not changed. Uh, so sorry, I don't have a better answer to your question, Tyler. Hey, hey Zach. Yeah, what's up? Really quick. Um, I just want to make sure before we're done, I don't have a time limit, so I'm willing, I'm able to go as long as Ross is. But before we leave, I'd love for you to answer or ask me Jesse's question about Bart Ehrman and Revelation 2010. So just make sure you take note of that because I want to answer his question. Okay, but, we can definitely get to that. Um, do you have any time limit on when you need to be out of here by? No, I'm good as long as Ross is. Well, you, Ross? I shouldn't go too much longer. I think we should, probably should keep it around uh, the two-hour mark just because it's People are a little bit intimidated when it goes, you know, too far beyond two hours. And uh, I probably should help my wife with our, with our little one month old. Yeah. Yeah. So, totally understandable. Uh, ten um, more minutes. Yeah. Ten minutes work. Okay. We will be done by the two ten mark. Um, this will be ten minutes from now. Uh, next question comes from Michael Miano. Uh, he says, "What verses did and or does Chris provide for the complete destruction of death and sin?" Um, Old New Testament, please. 
Yeah, I mean, I've already I've already answered this question from the hyperpreterist. First um, Corinthians fifteen says that physical death is a last enemy to be katargeo. It will cease to happen. It's right there when the righteous are raised bodily to be rendered physically immortal. Isaiah twenty five says that God Yahweh will swallow up death forever, using the language of Sheol, swallowing up people when they go down into Sheol dead. Um, and and he calls it. You know, this is contrary to the hyperpreterist reading of Isaiah twenty five. In the very in that very verse, it says this is the covering that is covering all peoples, all nations. The Hebrew is kol goyim. All goyim means Gentiles. All Gentiles. It, it, the swallowing up of death is not about the, resur the, the corporate resurrection, which uh, isn't doesn't even make sense to use the language. The language doesn't refer to anything corporate. It's a physical thing. It doesn't refer to the corporate resurrection of the church. It's about the thing that is covering all goyim, all nations. And that enemy that is death will be a physical death will be katargeo, cease to exist, uh, cease to happen, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. This is this is one area where Ross and I and all other Christians for 2000 years can absolutely agree. This doctrine that the resurrection is something in our past and wasn't physical is abject heresy. Um, and I look forward to demonstrating as much in my debate in August. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, don't be don't be a hyper preterist. <laughs> <laughs> I love when people debating can agree with each other. It's kind of like <laughs> <laughs> the reform that they agree on more than just that. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we'll do a question for Ross and then we'll do a question from Chris and then we'll wrap things up here. Um, this question for Ross comes from Greg Chesser. He says, uh, do you think Jesus stretches the vision um, in parentheses as you accuse Chris of doing it in the parentheses uh, to interpret the vision of being cast in the lake of fire when he told John it is the second death? Uh I mean, if I answered yes, I think Jesus stretches the vision. Uh, I think I just automatically lose the debate right there. No, I don't think Jesus uh, stretches the vision when he's... Um, I don't interpret second death to mean cessation of existence. I don't think that that's what that means. I've given arguments for that. So I don't, I don't think it's a... Uh, I don't think calling the uh, fire and torment that we see in Revelation 20, I don't think calling that second death is stretching at all, but I think I disagree with Greg's conclusion as to what second death means. Okay. Uh, final question here, and then we'll wrap things up from Jesse Peliaz. Peliaz um, he says, question for Chris, what do you think of Airmen agreeing with you on all the examples in the Old Testament, except on Revelation 20.10 being eternal torment, the appeals to the reading of the text being different? Yeah, so actually Jesse's wrong here. Um, this is Bart Ehrman's book, Heaven and Hell. And what's really interesting about this book um, is that uh, Bart Ehrman, despite thinking, this is important and, and significant, he thinks the Bible is inconsistent with itself on almost everything, and certainly almost everything having to do with eschatology. When Christ would return, whether people are conscious in death, what the nature of the resurrection body is, he thinks, and wrongly, he thinks that the Bible is inconsistent on all these things. Remarkably, the one thing that Ehrman thinks the Bible is consistent about, even though he doesn't want to come out and say it, is that the final punishment for the wicked is annihilation. And Revelation 2010 is no exception to him saying as much. This is what he says on page 227 under the final end of sinners. The judgment of the dead, both wicked and righteous, comes in the terse description of Revelation 2011-15. And then he describes the great and the small rising to stand before the throne. No one is exempt. Um, one book is the book of life. The other books record the deeds of everyone who's ever lived. Um, everybody's thrown into the lake of fire that was not written in that Lamb's book of life. And then look what he says. 
What is more, and by the way, this is another really good reason for thinking that the doctrine of eternal torment is false. What is more, Ehrman says, death and Hades themselves are thrown into the lake of into the lake of fire. And the author tells us this is the second death, the lake of fire. Once again, he says, new paragraph, it makes no sense to imagine that living beings known as death and Hades are literally thrown into a lake boiling with fire to be punished forever. This is describing the ultimate destruction of all that is opposed to God. God is the author of life, death is his enemy, and it, along with the entire realm of the dead, will be destroyed permanently. They will not exist anymore. That is why the lake is called the second death. It is the final annihilation of all that is dead, including all humans who are dead. For them, there is no more life ever. Far from Ehrman disagreeing with me on Revelation 2010, as you can see, he agrees wholeheartedly with me, um, and I'll look forward to you acknowledging as much, Jesse, in the comments next time I see you commenting on Rethinking Hell Live. <laughs> um, guys, it's been a really fun debate. I really enjoyed it. You guys have been a lot of fun. Uh, very good spirited. Um, very, uh, you guys argued well. I really appreciate it. I encourage you guys to check out Rethinking Hell. Follow Chris Jade on Twitter. Um, anyways, you can follow Chris. There should be links in the description. And I encourage you to follow Ross Burns at Burns Eye View. Subscribe to him on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. There should be links in the description as well. Guys, it's been a very fun, a very fun debate. I've enjoyed it a lot. I have a and, and Ross, um, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you so much for a um, very fun and an enjoyable, vigorous, but loving and respectful debate. I really hope that people who watch this will see that this is how Christian brothers can disagree vigorously and yet show each other the kind of love and respect that as Christians were called to do. Because remember, as Jesus said, the world is going to know that we're his disciples by the way we love one another. So let's show the world that we are disciples of Christ and take the, the gospel to the world that so desperately needs um, Jesus Christ. Couldn't agree more. Well said, Chris. Yeah. Amen, Chris. It's a great way to end this debate, guys. All right. Thanks, to everyone, for tuning in. We're going to end the broadcast now. Um, God bless.